0: We have talked a good bit on this show about how Southerners have shaped America. But how does the rest of the world view the South? When I've mentioned that I'm from Alabama while abroad, I'm usually either met with a question about Forrest Gump, or maybe the chorus of Sweet Home Alabama, occasionally something about football, and rarely more than that. If you're a Southerner who's living or traveled abroad, tell me what your experience has been like. Today on The Reckon Interview, we're speaking with Don Heflin, a diplomat who has served for more than 30 years in the U.S. State Department. His career has taken him from stations in Peru to Mexico to Zambia to London, and he's currently the head of consul operations at the U.S. Embassy in India. Heflin grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, and we chat a little bit about how he's maintained ties to the South while serving around the world, and how his time abroad has changed his perspective on the region where he grew up. Now, we recorded this conversation via Zoom across a 10-hour time difference between Tuscaloosa and India, so I will warn you, there's a couple moments where Heflin's connection wavers and the sound dips out a little bit. But if you listen closely, you'll still hear an accent that's never quite disappeared after three decades abroad. So let's get started with Don Heflin on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Ambassador Don Heflin, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Great to be here. I know it's a 10-hour time difference, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Right now, you are the head of all consular operations in India. For those of us who are not necessarily familiar with the way that Foreign Service and and State Department works, tell us exactly what that means and and where that fits in terms of ambassadors and charged affairs and and all of these roles.
1: In my job, my number one job is to help Americans who get in trouble overseas, and in India that's Fortunately, not too many people. I've been in countries where there's a lot of people who've had hundreds of prisoners in jail at any given time. India is not one of those places. Uh, we do have people come over here and just have mishaps during travel. We have a pretty good amount of children or the children of a divorce where mom or dad is back in the U.S. and the other parents here in India with them. We have to check in on every now and then subjects of custody. And then we talk to all the Indians who want to go to the U.S. to work or study. I'm about number three in the MC hierarchy. Now, earlier this year, I had a couple stints where I acted as ambassador. Of Charge A is the technical term, and the reason for that was the transition. We had a politically appointed ambassador under President Trump. Ken just is a good guy and he did really well, but he had to leave on January 20th, so I had to fill in when he first left. And-,
0: and you are a career diplomat, not a political appointee. You've been in the service for a little over 30 years now. Is that right? That's right. I
1: practiced law in Huntsville and left to join the firm service in 1987.
0: Let's talk a little bit about India right now, because as COVID cases have been dropping in the United States, we did see a spike in India. And one of the dominant strains in the world right now is a variant that developed in India. You know, as the head of consular operations, what was your response to Balancing, stopping the spread of COVID while also making sure that Americans are able to get in touch with their loved ones in India or American citizens who are in India were able to get home.
1: Yeah, I was acting ambassador at the time the second wave started. It was terrible. Uh, We all, several of our local Indian employees in the embassy died. We had one American die. The Indian population had it a lot worse. Problem here was it's such a big country. It's going to take them a long time to get vaccinated. And they had this variant show up. They've been doing very well. Their numbers were very good for months. They had opened up restaurants and stores on socially distant spaces. And then this variant showed up and just went ripping through the country and overwhelmed our hospital beds. That's what really concerned us. And we immediately, if you go on my Facebook page, you'll see a posting of which I talked about how proud I was of our country that day. We got on conferences with Washington. I'll never forget it. it was on a Friday. And I said, we need to have oxygen landing on airplanes here by next Thursday. They just didn't even have enough oxygen in the hospital. It took them by surprise. And we did it. The U.S. Air Force brought over big cargo loads of oxygen and ventilators. Other countries did the same thing. And then the Indian government did the right thing. But it was pretty scary. India lost a lot of people in about a six-week period.
0: Early on in your career, I, I guess it was your second posting probably, you served in India. You started out in Peru in, in the late 80s and then served in India in 1990. How has the subcontinent changed in the last 30 years? And how has its relationship with the United States changed?
1: It's, it's changed a lot. You know, when I, I remember my first tour was in Peru, and it's recognizably the same culture as the United States. It's just, you know, if I told you I dropped you off in a poor area of Texas or California, you'd you believe me. I got off the plane in India and I thought, We are not in Kansas anymore. It's totally different. Everything's different. The way people dress, the colors, the houses of worship, the cars they drove. Uh, Half the time you'd be in the street and big things like computers be hauled through the streets by a cart driven by bulls. It was totally different. And it was very much off the world economy. It it had built a wall around itself. And you couldn't import hardly anything. And relations with the U.S. weren't great. Historically, they were okay, but... It was a socialist country, a lot of ties to the Soviet Union. I come back 30 years later, very integrated into the world economy, a lot of people-to-people ties and family ties between the U.S. and India, places westernized a lot. I'm not sure that's always a good thing. It's just really night and day. The economy is booming. The middle class, there's still a lot of poor people, but a big middle class. I would say the Indian middle class now is probably 300 million people. There's a lot of traffic back and forth between the two countries. A lot of joint ventures going on between big American companies and big Indian companies. And generally speaking, I think the U.S. has become more popular here. Relations are pretty warm and have been for years. We work together a lot on COVID, both before India's crisis this spring and and now to help them pull out the crisis. It's a country that basically friendly to American values, and can be a real partner in this area of the world.
0: A few weeks ago, we spoke with another guest on the Reckon interview, a woman named Anjali Jetty. She's an Indian-American woman and a Southerner from Georgia. And we were talking about partition and recently India moving more aggressively, I guess, towards policing non-Hindu. Worshippers in the country, particularly the, the division with Pakistan and, and the Muslim population there. Have those differences been mitigated in any way by the COVID crisis? Or is that still, I mean, is that still something that people should be concerned about in, in India right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, you go back, you know, Pakistanis celebrate Independence Day, Indians don't. It was traumatic in India. Partition was just terrible. Millions of people died. A good chunk of the country became independent, became Pakistan and later it became Bangladesh, but it was a trauma. They celebrate the day they became a republic instead. That's one thing that's changed in the last 30 years. India 30 years ago was much more of a secular country. The old ruling parties kind of bent over backwards to express that India wasn't a Hindu country. It was a secular country made up of all faiths. That's kind of gone away. Uh, It'd be interesting to see if the COVID crisis had forged more of a a unity, particularly among poor people and just regular people, because yeah, everybody was in the same boat. I mean, everybody was in the same boat, and you know, everybody had their relatives dying. Everybody was going to the hospital, not finding beds or finding a bed, and there was no oxygen. Every cloud has some kind of silver lining. That would be a silver lining if if people on the kind of a personal level connected a little bit more pipe in communities.
0: You grew up in Alabama. I know that you worked part of your career in Birmingham. I believe you grew up in Huntsville. So how how did you get involved with foreign service? I mean, did you travel a lot as a kid? Is this something that you always knew you wanted to do? How did you stumble into this line of work? No, I think the furthest we traveled was Panama City Beach. But when I was growing up in Huntsville, it was a very international
1: town. There are people from all over the world there. The Huntsville Times was a fantastic newspaper. It, It covered foreign affairs really well. My parents... Read the morning and evening paper every day, and we all sat down and watched the evening news together. I got very interested. And then I went to Birmingham Southern, and one of my professors was Natalie Davis, who did a fantastic job of teaching uh, politics in other countries, and it really got me interested. And then I went to law school and kind of put it aside for a few years, but when I was practicing law, it was I was doing okay. I mean, there were some times I really felt like I was helping people. I was paying the bills, but it clearly wasn't my fault. I knew that. And I decided to try the Foreign Service to see how it went for a few years. And like most people who joined the Foreign Service, you know, I, I, oh, five, maybe 10 years, but I really got sucked into the system and have now been doing it for 34 years this fall.
0: Were you serving in India a few years ago when there was the incident in Huntsville where an elderly Indian gentleman was body slammed by police officers there was that
1: no I forget where I was at the time I, I paid attention to the uh issue that's the kind of thing that will really make the Indian press every time okay they're very sensitive to that kind of incident involving their nationals in the U.S. or anywhere really
0: for our audience who maybe would want to follow into in your footsteps and get involved with foreign service, you know, how does one go about that? Do you need to be versed in whatever language you're planning to you know, where you would like to go and, and serve? You know, if I wanted to serve in, in India, would I need to learn local languages in, in order to do that?
1: Well, no, a lot of us come in without language. It's extra points if you have language when you're recruited. And as far as your career, having any kind of rational path, they give you the illusion of input into where you go. I always compare it to having kids and they hop in the car and you go, you want to go to McDonald's or Burger King? And they get all excited because they choose. They get a hamburger either way, right? I would say, first off, the Foreign Service, the way you get in the Foreign Service is some exceptions. You take a test, and it's a kind of a combination of an aptitude and knowledge test. If you pass it, there's an oral exam and then you join the Foreign Service. It's not that many people. Either. Big hiring year might be 200, 300 people. But there's a lot of other careers in foreign affairs. And I actually, for years now, have been open to being contacted by people uh, who are interested in this. And usually what I do is I ask them a few questions about themselves, their experiences, and I send them a tailor reply. But I don't concentrate just on the State Department of Foreign Service. There are other opportunities to work overseas. To, there's churches, there's banks, there's other agencies, the U.S. government. The only thing I caution people about is if you're interested in the subject matter, if you're really interested in international affairs and relations, you either want to move around the world like I do or you want to work in Washington. That's not necessarily logical. You think there'd be a lot of these kind of jobs in, say, Atlanta or Chicago or San Francisco. It's just not. It's kind of do or die. Washington, you move around. So, you know, you have to not only... Be interested in the subject matter. but you have to make a lifestyle? Launch yourself down in Washington and be a part of your local community and really become a deep expert on what you're working on. Or do you want to move around the world and it's kind of be a talented amateur like I am? Anybody who's interested in what I just said, it's eflindl at state.gov. Drop me a line. I'm happy to apply anytime. eflindl at state.gov.
0: Wonderful. How do you maintain your connections to Alabama after having lived away 30-something years?
1: Well, it's you know with electronic media, it's gotten kind of a little easier. When I first went overseas, I couldn't figure out any way to watch or listen to the Bama football games. So I had my mom tape the old coaches' shows. Remember those thirty minutes? The next day we get every play. I kind of eagerly await those. Now it's easy. I can watch every game. I used to also have the Huntsville Times sent to me in the diplomatic pouch, which the diplomatic pouch carriers would bitch and moan about until I asked them, "Do you have a problem with this New York Times?" No. But uh, when my for the longest time, uh, we tend to in the foreign service take our vacations in big chunky like three or four weeks of time in the summertime when our kids are out of school. And I did exactly that. I would go back to base myself in Huntsville and go down to Birmingham, Tuscaloosa uh, for three four weeks a year. My daughter went to college at Austin Peay in two thousand seven, and my mom passed away in two thousand twelve. And all of a sudden, I you know I needed to be where my daughter was later where my future wife was and didn't even be in Huntsville as much. So kind of the past 10 years or so, but did come down a lot and maintain a lot of friendships. And I keep up. I read Alabama.com every day.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Your service has taken you to at least Peru, India, Mexico, Zambia, Rwanda, Burundi, London, and Cape Baird. So, you know, a lot of those countries are in what often gets labeled at one point it was labeled in the third world. And I think that the, the common term now is, is the global South. And I remember the first time I heard the global South as a Southerner, I was like, what does that mean? That like the rest, of the, those are the countries that are considered, you know, the South. And does that make the, the G7 countries, the North, what is the global South, but then also how has that service affected your perspective of the American South, you know, your, your time in these other countries?
1: Well, yeah, you're right. It's uh, With the exception of some fairly highly developed countries like, say, India, generally Brazil, generally speaking, the southern hemisphere was colonized by the countries of Europe in the northern hemisphere. And uh, we'll be debating for decades or centuries all the effects of colonization. Uh, But generally speaking, it's really kind of hard to get rich selling your minerals or your agricultural produce to people halfway around the world. And that's exactly what happened to all these countries. They were poor. They, they became independent and then they were still poor. We were Peru kind of recognized the American culture, India totally different. When I got to Zambia, the first time I went driving in the countryside, I thought, oh my God, this is just like the black belt. I spent a lot of time around the black belt, I love it. And it's very similar. have yeah, people wearing different clothes and the houses are different, but generally speaking, it's very similar geography, very similar problems of poverty, people who are tied to the land, people love the land and wouldn't consider moving anywhere else. And I think in a lot of ways, Southerners may have a better understanding of this. I was really interested when I was in um, Zambia's first place, I noticed how many Auburn grads I kept running, right? Because they study things like agriculture and agricultural engineering. And uh, they were all over uh, the development world, working in the global south and I got back to Washington I kept running into all the grass. So finally, I its some days before Google. So I think I just, how many people do you have in the Washington area? He said, 10,000. I said, wow. So I called Bama's from my office and I said, how many people do you have in the Washington area? Same answer. Who knew? But a lot of them are working in ag and ag development and things like that. And doing some really good work.
0: There's a lot of connections, obviously, to West Africa and the South. I mean, much of our African-American population in the South can trace their lineage back to countries like Ghana, Nigeria, Senegal. And at one point, you were serving as the deputy director of the Office of, of West African Affairs. You know, what role can the State Department play in both helping people discover those connections. People can't necessarily trace it because uh, slavery wiped out lineage records and things like that. So what role can the State Department play in helping people develop those connections and then also maintaining those connections?
1: We are seeing a little tourism in that direction. Uh, when I was in Nerd, we've devoted some small amounts of U.S. government money to help them to restore some of the sites in West Air. Places like the Farewell Gate or Gory Island, where it's often the last part of Africa that slaves saw, or W.E.B. Bois' house in Ghana. There's now a bit of tourism of, of African-Americans going back and kind of retracing the route to the extent they can. What a lot of people are doing is 23andMe or Ancestry.com, which tells you where your ancestors were from. You're not going to get much more than that out of it. When I was in Cabo Verde, it was really interesting. Uh, Professor Henry Louis Gates at, at Harvard, uh, has some stuff up on his website, and basically his theme is that you know in American, we think we understand slave people came over from West Africa and they picked out in the South. No, that's about ten percent of the total. Most folks went to the Caribbean or Brazil. And he's got a really good graphic of dots. A lot of them went from Cabo Verde, and there's a UNESCO World Heritage Site there in Cidade, which I took a lot of interest. That was the auction block, of people who going on mostly to Brazil there. Uh, it's interesting, the US had a real history there because, you know, for fairly early in the 1800s, the slave trade was illegal. You could hold slaves in the South and all everything went with slavery. You couldn't import them. And the Royal Navy and the US Navy, the slave trades pressed to the best they could. And we found the uh, records of the guys who had been the consuls before the in independent countries, even the master of the US consuls in Cabo Bear and how they work together with the U.S. Navy to bust up some slave trade.
0: I'm curious about, you know, the reaction that you received in these countries, but also, you know, elsewhere where you've served, you know, as a, as a white man from Alabama, uh, what are the perceptions that they have about Alabama and the South in, in general?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I never had a real problem with that, except with the one exception, which I'll come back to, you I've know, never had anybody look at me and so say, we are from Alabama, you know, I hear that's like the worst. Now, people who were in the Foreign Service 20 or 30 years before I was said it was a real problem, that, you know, we would really be pressing some of these newly independent countries about civil rights issues, freedoms, and we'd be criticizing the Soviets, and the Soviets said, well, what about Selma? You know, what about, the, what about this? What about that? Uh, what about the police dogs in Birmingham? By the time I came along, that had really ceased. People saw it more as an American problem. They would raise, and, you know, what aboutism, as we call it. What about this thing that happened in the U.S.? What that really isolated to the south in Alabama. I remember one time we were leaning on an African country to get them to treat refugees better than they were. And California had some anti-immigrant proposition, okay, and that got thrown back in our face. However, I will say this. Um, I married a Massachusetts girl. And so I spent a lot of time uh, in recent years around uh, New England Yankees. And they've actually got that syndrome really bad. They, they've never been down to the South. They can't really speak and they don't go Southwest to the city if they can avoid it. But they think they understand the South and I think the problems are kind of simple down here. It can just be labeled and you move on. I go back. It's a very old times.
0: You were talking about you know that perception in the '60s and '70s. Last year, you know, with the death of George Floyd, we did see protests around the world, from from Europe to Africa to South America. Was there much of a reaction in India at at that time?
1: I was actually in Mexico at the time, and you know, frankly, COVID was pretty strong, and there wasn't much of a reaction in the sense of demonstrations in the streets. It did cause us to have a lot of discussions within the State Department. We also had an incident at that time. An officer who was getting hassled every time she entered the U.S. Young African American woman, and that caused a lot of soul searching in the State Department. Uh, we've also done. We're under the the Foreign Service Act because it's under a very specific duty to look like the U.S. And we don't. Uh, we try. We have problems recruiting. We have problems retaining people. Uh, we're also kind of like if you look at my group that are seeing right now. We the intake policies of 35% uh, of to today, and the groups we're bringing in today is young, first-time officers, much more diverse. So, uh, and I don't think there were any big demonstrations in you either. But it, it, the stories were varied around the world. The media picked it up every.
0: You joined in the late 80s, so I would assume that would have been under President Reagan. You would have served under both President Bush's, President Clinton, President Obama, President Trump. Each president brings a very different foreign policy. I won't make a comment on any of the politics of, of those presidents. I know that you, you can't do that as a State Department employee. But, you know, as a career diplomat, as a member of, the, quote, unquote, the, the deep state, how do you adapt from, you know, changing foreign policy to changing foreign policy, depending on the country that you're in? This
1: has probably been a little less true in recent years. But for the longest time, you know, we always talking about the bipartisan, and the truth is that if you look at what candidates say they're going to do on foreign policy as candidates, first off, they tend not to concentrate on foreign policy very much, but foreign, usually domestic issues get you elected. Foreign policy is what you do when you find the domestic issues are kind of tough, and and some opportunity comes up on your national stage. But if you think, for instance, like um, a successful candidate for president when you're I uh, may have had three, four really solid points they are making a something I want to change. But they all talk about the hundreds of things every day. Africa policy tends not to change very much between administrations. Policy towards India tends not to change very much between administrations. Okay? It really is bipartisan
0: in a lot of ways.
1: Certain other areas of the world,
0: yeah, they change a lot. And Republican. I, I would imagine that there are at least a couple of sea change events that took place during your career. The collapse of the Soviet Union, and then of course 9/11. Those two events certainly reshaped our foreign policy broadly. What are your memories of those of those events um, during your service?
1: <laughs> I was uh, home on leave when the wall fell in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. So I wasn't overseas to absorb it. One big thing it, it did was that a good number of years after that, uh, the Soviet Union, later the Russians, were not nearly as aggressive overseas. They were very aggressive overseas. My first tour was when the wall fell, was in Peru. And the Soviet military was all this little country in South America. But they had to really pull on their horns. Uh, 9-11 really changed the way we do business a lot. We actually, in the State Department, our embassies, our buildings tended to be kind of open. We wanted foreigners to come to meet with us and see what we were all about. Then a couple of years from 9-11, we had the attacks on the embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, and we began to toughen up our embassies. And after 9-11, it got beyond tough. We started going around building a lot of new buildings that are very hard to get to, very hard to get inside. Something got lost in, you know, uh, when I'm charge A here, I travel around with heavy security,
0: and we're just not...
1: We're still meeting with the leadership of the countries. We're still on the media a lot, but it's harder for us to get out and just mix up with the average
0: person. Coming up after the break, more from Don Heflin about how life abroad has changed the way he thinks about the South and some global issues that should be on all of our radars. Hey, guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at reckonsouth.com slash newsletters. You know, in the United States, a lot of our news still tends to center around European countries. You know, we'll get news about what's happening in England, you know, anything from the, the royal family to, to Brexit. We'll get news about France and, and Germany. We don't get a whole lot of news on our you know mainstream TV channels about what's happening in you know, the subcontinent, uh, even what's happening in Asia, beyond China and, and Japan, and certainly what's happening in in Africa. Um, and I read just a couple of weeks ago that by 2050, there's some estimates that Nigeria will actually have a larger population than China. And so what are some issues that, you know, we probably have not been paying attention to in the United States, uh, in, in Africa, in India, and elsewhere under your purview that, that we need to be aware of?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right, and you know, if you look at say the trade figures between the US and the EU, there's good reasons that the EU that Europe's on the center of our radar screen, okay? There's a lot of money being made for and jobs created in you know on both sides of the Atlantic, but you know, India's the numbers aren't shabby as a trading partner. One thing I don't think we pay nearly enough attention is Mexico, Mexico's right next to us. Uh, they're part of a free trade area with us, they do a lot of our labor for us in terms of. Putting stuff together. And uh, the amount of trade, I remember I was acting as ambassador there one time. I turned and asked the ag guy, How much agricultural stuff do we he sell to Mexico? We always think of Mexicans raising avocados. We sell a lot of stuff there. And it was some phenomenal number. I mean, I, it was huge, like several billion dollars, I think, a year. Who knows that? I did one tour in Nuevo uh, Laredo, just on the border. We had a terrible war between two drug cartels. I mean, terrible. Bombs were going off, machine gunnings, um, and you sometimes you could hear it on the radio in Texas. It never made the American media north of San Antonio. How's that possible? This is a country next door. Whereas, if in downtown London, people were blowing off car bombs and shooting up machine guns, it'd be front page news.
0: Has your time abroad shaped the way that you think about, reshaped the way that you think about the United States and about the South in particular?
1: When I first joined, was a couple of years also of being on the uh, Madison County Democratic Committee, right, and I had very strongly held views. And I kept working for these people that were more what we call You know, they were really neither liberal nor conservative nor democratic nor Republican. They tend to look at each question and see what would work and what would work, almost like an engineer. And no, I thought, man, people have no value system. I'll never be like them, man. Now, ah, here I am. Now I've become a technocrat. And what it, you tend to do is you go back and look at where you're from or other parts of the U.S., other problems in the U.S. And you, you look at it like you would have formed. How did we get here? And how could we fix this? Or is this just kind of baked in? This is going to be So how do we even fix this over here instead? I, yeah, I do tend to turn that on the U.S. a lot. And and the South, I've always thought, uh, you know, I love to read Southern history. There's, there's a lot in there to be unpacked. But when you, for instance, Alabama history, if you step and, and look. and take the long in Alabama history, it's so been a struggle for 150 years or more between the Whigs and the Union. The Whigs being the people that have big money or allied with outside economic interests, what Big Jim Folsom used to call big mules. And then the folks who have no money. Okay. And one faction or the other will become ascendant for some time, and then things will reverse themselves, and the other will become ascendant. Political parties change, the labels like liberal and conservative change. But basically, it's always been a struggle in Alabama between the leagues, the big and everybody else. And it's probably, you know, unless there's some just huge sea change in Alabama politics, it's going to be like that 30, 40, 50 years from now.
0: To close, you, know, you mentioned being a student of history. You're obviously a citizen of the world. There were some books, or films, or other resources that you think our audience should check out in order to to better understand their place in in the world society, uh, whether it's as as a Southerner or an, an American or it's an Alabamian. What are some resources you would point to?
1: Yeah, you know, the world as a whole—that's tough. You really need to. First off, you got to like to read nonfiction. Okay, not everybody does, but if you like to read nonfiction. You know, there's some really good books out there down in your public library on, you know, the, the history of India or the history of China or Japan or Brazil, Mexico, awesome, excellent books written about them. As far as the South's concerned, uh, there are a lot of good books out there on civil rights. Movement. I'm actually fascinated by, you and I were talking before we went on the air about the Benita Carter podcast you guys did. And I was in Birmingham at the time and I was taking a deep dive into Back in the '60s, when Bull Connor was running the police in Birmingham, how the city fathers tried to change the former government to get him out of office, and that in turn led to a lot of research into the New South movement. And I think it's really an overlooked period though in the 1920s and '30s in the South, the kind of the attempts to improve the place without a lot of money coming in, and then FDR and the New Deal came along, and put a lot of money into began to transform the South. But uh, back in those days, I read The Emergence of the New South and The Transformation of the New South. And then later, uh, Jack Bass and Walter Reed's books on um, transformation of Southern politics, V.O. Keith's classic book on Southern politics has chapters in Alabama, and W.J. Cash's The Mind of the South. But there's really, you know, Southern history's gone through a lot of phases. Since the Civil War, you uh, have uh, got Reconstruction, Get the post-Reconstruction era. You've got the New South movement and the social gospel movement, the early 20th century. Then the New Deal comes along. Then there's the 50s and 60s, kind of back and forth on civil rights. Then the 70s, which I, again, was when I was a kid, but I see as a golden era. And then everything that's happened since then. And I think there's a lot of untold stories in there. And that's the stories of the uh, civil rights lawyers, the uh, Homewood. Had a voting rights case, one man one vote, went to the Supreme Court. All four attorneys on both the plaintiffs and defendants' side were graduates of the University of Alabama. There were movements to how uh, Hethman was a real leader in reforming the judicial system and making it something that the average person could understand and use. With distant relations, I was quite an admirer of his. I was volunteering his campaigns. Um, I thought he was a very good senator. I think one of the untold stories— we could come back and talk about these kind of stories one day. But he kept George Wallace out of the Senate, hands down. 1978, Wallace was term limited. He had no place to go to the U.S. Senate. And our poll showed on thumb, 17, 18 percent. But also, I think more importantly, he was very fantastic. He did eight years, two years as head of the state bar and the six years as chief justice, where he totally transformed the judicial system. And that, there's a book just in that, I think. If he'd never been in the U.S. Senate, he should go down as, as probably the greatest chief justice we've had in Alabama.
0: Well, Ambassador Heflin, um, any last wisdom for our audience before we close?
1: i say this. If you've got the bug to travel overseas, to live overseas for a while, to work in kind of international affairs, do it. Again, email me at heflindlstate.gov if, if a career is something that you're interested in. But you know, get outside, go travel the world. You know, sometimes you'll find things aren't as bad in the US as you thought they were once you see how they do things over season. Sometimes you'll see things overseas and you'll think, hey, this really works. Why don't we do this back home?
0: And it's a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much. We'll hope to talk to you again soon. Great. Happy to. Anytime. Thanks. And that's our show, folks. If you like this show and you want to make sure that it gets renewed for another season, do me a quick favor. First, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and then send your favorite episode of the show to a few friends and ask them to give it a listen and subscribe. The more people who tune in, the more I'll be able to keep doing this. Special thanks this week to Don Heflin for taking the time out of his schedule to speak with us. If you've been living abroad and you want to share your experience, shoot me an email or tweet me at, at John Hammontree. We're going to be talking more about this topic in the conversation in our weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at www.reckonsouth.com slash newsletters. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It is edited by Kanika Codrington and the stellar team at Edit Audio. Original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.